Welcome to episode 27 of The God Learners, a podcast about gaming and reading in the mythical world of Glorantha. I am Ludovic, aka Lord Abdul. I am Jörg, and today's guest is uh, no one less than the creative director of Chaosium. Welcome, Jeff. Hi there. <laughs> I'm Jeff Richard. I'm the creative director and chair of Chaosium. Ooh, yeah, yeah. it took us 27 episodes, apparently, to work up the courage to get you on the podcast about Glorantha. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, um, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, thank you for taking the time on uh, Saturday. I mean, most people who would be crazy enough to spend time listening to a podcast about Glorantha surely know your name. But just in case, uh, you know, maybe some people just picked up the rule book and they would be forgiven to not have noticed your name on the cover because they look at the awesome cover. So for those who may not quite remember who you are, what would be your you know short version of who you are and why you are highly qualified to talk about Glorantha? Well, so I'm the creative director of Chaosium. Um, I'm the uh, lead writer on most of the RuneQuest uh, books. And uh, among the many hats that I wear, I'm also uh, the lead art director on RuneQuest. I'm also the editor for Pendergan and also involved in the... That generally for the, the the look and themes of of most of the Chaosium publications. Mm. So is that a good enough? Is that is is that enough there? <laughs> yes. Yeah. This. Uh, I think you qualify. It's good. Uh, we'll actually talk a bit, uh, hopefully, about your role as art director because that's one of the big draw of the new edition. But uh, let's start a bit with actually how you came into Glorenta, like a bit of your gaming history, uh, a short version. So I've been I, I've been playing role playing games since. Um, Gosh, late seventies, early early eighties. Started with uh, she started. We tried to play D and the the very very earliest versions of D and D, and we couldn't figure out the rules until somebody picked up Gamma World. Uh, so I actually got in through Gamma World and Metamorphosis uh, Alpha, and and then got into RPGs and and. Uh, it was around. I think I was uh, in middle school or high school when somebody, one of my friends, um, said, "Hey, there's this great game, and you can play anything in the setting. You can even be a wear pig." And we thought the idea of being a wear pig was just so awesome. And uh, and then we realized it was in the same setting as the uh, the war game, uh, White Bear and Red Moon, which we had which we had already played, and just thought, "Hey, this is just a cool." Um, fantasy setting. So, so I've been I've been in gaming for a long time, and Greg and I started writing together back at some point in the '90s, and then in the 2000s, uh, ended up uh, pretty much while taking over uh, bailing out Isseries and uh, the Hero Wars Hero Quest line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then when. Greg regained control over Chaosium. He brought Rick and myself and Mob and Neil in. And, you know, the rest uh, is history, as they say. Yeah. Uh, Jörg, actually, just before the recording, was telling me about the Werepig, because apparently that was your actual first character in RuneQuest. I believe Pinky Petunia was my first character. Didn't She didn't last very long, but she was a, a kamikaze Werepig, which... 
you know, to a 14 or 15 year old who had been playing, you know, up until that point, just uh, AD&D and related games. It was it was a liberation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, again, George was telling me about the the Seattle Farmers Collective and a lot of the exploratory gaming that went around Glorenta around that time. Yeah, yeah, that was David Dunham and myself, and and Neil Robinson, Pam Carlson, Dana Shack, uh, and Dave Pearton, and others. And and one of the things that that we had done is we had David had had managed to. Uh, marry the Pendragon rules with RuneQuest, which on mm-hmm. retrospect is is pretty easy. And we did a couple of generational games uh, set in Glorantha. And you know, it was it was what was interesting about it was is that you know we were we were playing games where the characters were really they were the local community and they were involved in the they were involved in you know these these bronze age feuds and and um and the more the players did the worse things got for them and the more success they were the more successful they were the worse things got and and at the time i was i was uh i was reading an awful lot of icelandic sagas and was very interested in theories of uh theories of feud so basically how do how do feud systems end up creating an equilibrium? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was uh, and probably overly influenced by that at the time, but we had a wonderful time. And, and a lot of that got um, worked its way into David's computer game, King of Dragon Pass. And then, you know, 20 years later, uh, a lot of it ended up working its way into the current edition of RuneQuest. Yeah, probably the the way that people these days, you know, go into RuneQuest saying like, oh, hey, that's the same setting of that video game I liked is the newer version of your, you know, oh, that that, that role-playing game is the same setting as that other board game I liked. Yeah, the the thing about it is, is that that RuneQuest is one of these games that, you know, it's very clear that people are getting back into it. And as we look at our sales numbers and such on it, it's it's definitely largely a new audience, yeah, you know, which is good, which is fantastic, which is fantastic. And so some come in through the some come in through the the old uh, David's computer game or his new one, uh, Six Ages. Yeah. Uh, others come in and uh, through the Morrowind Skyrim connection. Oh, right. Yes. And others come. Yeah, it, it's it's I, I, I I've often joked it's the uh, uh, old RuneQuest is the velvet underground of gaming. You know, <laughs> 20,000 copies, but everybody who bought one of those early copies ended up, it ended up having a huge impression. Yeah. On. What, what, what do they say? Like, you might not know uh, RuneQuest, but uh, RuneQuest is your favorite game designer's favorite game? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and there's, you know, it. I'd say, though, that's changed in the last few years is, is because RuneQuest had been basically uh, dead as a role system since the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And uh, now that it's it, you know, now that there's a new edition, it's got a very fa- active uh, fan base. It's it's showing up at, at conventions um, again. It's certainly it's it's its audience is growing. So you know, I'm going to have to probably retire that uh, Velvet Underground joke pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sort of like it's sort of like a you know. 
Yeah. What would happen if that band ever actually had caught on? (laughs) Anyways. But yeah, I mean, the fact that there's lots of new people coming is is good. I mean, that that's why we have the podcast to try and and make Lorenta a bit more accessible, and why we have the also the running interview series where we interview new- newcomers to the setting, which is uh, super interesting. Uh, but anyway, uh, and before we dive more into it, um, I know that you're a big, of course, Chaosium fan, and now part of Chaosium and BRP is your favorite system. You've said it many times, but can you mention a bit of the other games that you either like or that influenced you or somehow left a mark on you over the several decades of... Yeah, I mean, I'd say that the the Chaosium series of games, Pendragon, Cthulhu, Nephilim, et cetera, were always, I've always been probably the biggest influences, but I, I, you know, among the games that I've loved, I've, I've, I actually loved uh, Vampire the Masquerade. Mm -hmm. I played it an awful lot when it first came out. Uh, I, I've done a couple of Ars Magica uh, campaigns. And again, what I liked about both of those is those are games where your characters have a, um, you're doing something other than, Going underground, knocking down doors, <laughs> and stealing people's shit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, other ones that I've got a, a big fondness for is the old uh, West End games, uh, uh, Star Wars, mm-hmm. which I thought was a fantastic game system. Um, uh, Bushido, which I also thought, you know, that's the, the kind of a predecessor for um, Land of the Ninja, actually, some of the same authors. Oh, right. Yeah. Bushido ended up working on Land of the uh, the Ninjas. Yeah, it probably and, had uh, the first battle rules. Oh like yeah, mass battle rules. Well, also it had great stuff of of the code of honor and oh, yeah. yeah. that into into gameplay. Mm-hmm. And then uh, one of my favorite games of all time uh, is uh, Chris Klug's uh, James Bond 007, which I think is is up there with Pendragon for brilliantly designed uh, games. Mm, I, I could probably think of some other. Those are the first ones I'm trying to look on my my side, uh, the side there. But I think that's what I think that's what most of that is. Cool. Uh, among some of your other notable credits, I need to mention because we are a Glorenta podcast. I believe you were part of the very first ever Glorenta podcast, like the Tales of Mythic Adventure. Yeah, that was Bob and I. That was Bob and I, and and the, the problem is we set that thing up, and then it did uh, doing a regular podcast or any sort of a regular show is just a gigantic uh, time commitment, and we know for some odd reason people thought it was more important that we write and create books than for there to be podcasts about rather <laughs> yes. than have podcasts about the stuff that we wanted to work on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Priorities, priorities. Yeah. Same with your work on the Prince of Sarta webcomic, I guess. Yeah. yeah, for some odd reason, people thought it would be better to have uh, uh, there being more books out and, and more major content than for uh, Colin and I to be sitting around playing around with an experimental comic. But, yeah. You know, Although, I mean, um, when I was asking around, uh, a, a, a few people mentioned the Prince of Star webcomic as the thing that draw uh, that drew them back to Glorantha, having played RuneQuest 2 back in the day. 
And sure. they said like they they came back through that and they said like oh yeah that was cool and and I, I guess having like a visualization of the setting really drew them back in. It was a neat project to work on, and that was that was you know that was part of the idea of it. But at a certain point, it became something that simply the time demands of it were not you know I couldn't justify the amount of time that it yeah yeah it's that, it's understandable so. Uh, but it was neat. It, it, it gave us a platform to really play around with the look and feel of of things. And and uh, you can see a lot of the impact of that in the later art um, and, and what's showing up now in the um, in the RuneQuest books. Well, speaking of, you are here to mainly talk about the new series of books, like these these bad boys that I'm showing and that obviously people can't see because this is a podcast, but uh, the Cult of RuneQuest books, which are, as I like to say, RuneQuest finally getting splat books, like uh, it's the 90s yeah. finally. <laughs> so it's you, you mentioned a few times that this was like pretty much the biggest project like the like the all the books together was the biggest thing you've ever done so far in your career like are you able to take a little break now or are you already diving into a next big project there are no breaks i just you know this is this is one of the different the things is is that this is what i do for a living uh and as a result you, you don't get to sit back and and take a nice pause because you got to be able to continue, um, continue creating because yeah. that's what, you know, that's at the end of the day, that's what uh, Chaosium is all about is, is creating, you know, new books, new, uh, new adventures, et cetera. So no, no pause for me. I will say that, uh, you know, I was looking at the um, early page spreads for, so the Lunar book uh, has had its first round of layout down, and we're just into the, um, we're now doing the refining. And so the hope is uh, that that will be off at the printer in the next couple of weeks. Okay. So it's, Exciting. It's, it's a Lunar book, then it's the Guide to Dragon Pass, then it's it's either the Sarter book or the the Solar book. So yeah. you know, basically my poor, you know, poor Sim, who's doing all the layout on this, they've got this. <laughs> it, it's, it's a, it's, it's a conveyor belt, which is a neat thing. You know, I don't think RuneQuest has ever been in the place where we could um, realistically uh, schedule six to uh, eight books for release in any 12 month period. Mm -hmm. And so now we, 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 we have the, you know, situation where the the RuneQuest and and coming next as well. I know this is a Glorantha podcast, but you know, getting the Pendragon line Pendragon, up. And yeah, yeah. yeah, when I when I met Sim at one of the Chaos Jump cons, I told them that I actually really love the Pendragon layout with the little medieval, ridiculous little animals in the margins and all that. <laughs> oh, they, they look fantastic. But yes, the Colts books is in terms of the size of the project, it's a 
um, in word count. It probably is about the same as the guide, maybe a little bit bigger. And so what, what was the most complicated aspect? Was it like the, the size or the like the interconnectedness of the, the interconnectedness and, and making sure all of these rule systems all tie in to each other? You know, unlike the guide, which is, you know, basically it's a fictional encyclopedia at a certain mm-hmm. point, as it's a purely narrative and descriptive project, it doesn't need to be mechanically linked in the right. same way that a rule system has. So can can you give an example of one of those inter like? Well, you've got to, for example, you've got to make sure that that when you you go through on associated cults, that all of the associated cults line up um, right. each yeah. other. You look yeah, at because you can't you can't make a big table when you've got a hundred cults. I have. I mean, I've got a hundred by a hundred table. Um, <laughs> no, it's 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 huge. I mean, there's yeah. some. I have some huge spreadsheets to keep it to keep straight. You know, which cults allow. Um, sorcery, which cults allow shamanism, which cults which cults are associated with other cults, which cults are are enemies of other cults. And that was a a whole nother level of complexity beyond writing the the guide, because in the guide, it's primarily descriptive and narrative. Yeah. And it goes it doesn't go into that level of detail no. anyway. Yeah. No. Yeah. And so that was just a that was a ginormous amount of 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 end work on that. Um, I noticed when you listed the Luna book as the next project going to print uh, that you didn't mention the mythology book, which might be out. Oh well, mythology book's already printed. It's released next month. So Go and buy, buy, buy. I've got that's that's uh, <laughs> where where do I have that here? I've got it just. <laughs> Yeah. Right here. No one can see it. No one can see it, of course, unless you yeah. give it No one can right. see this, but boy, it looks pretty. <laughs> yeah. so, and that that actually, that's what I, in a absolute ideal world where um, I don't, we don't have to worry about marketing this and we don't have to worry about building our audience um, and so forth. That's what, that's what we would have led the whole thing with. And, and the mythology book is, um, I view it as is the most important book in the series. We'll see. We'll see what the audience, you know, what the customers and the fans why so? Well, because it explains how Greg and I view the role of mythology, how to how to interact with the rest of the books. It provides um, a framework for the rest of the cults books. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it it itself has no cults in it. Yeah. So I think um, marketing made the right decision by having this start with uh, we you know we we released the the Prosopedia first, mm-hmm. which gave a big overview of all the cults, and then then went with Lightbringers and and Earth since those are the most uh, popular include the most popular player character cults. Then the the mythology books. So there's always been a part of me going, oh well. It'll be great when all the books are together and then people line them up the way that I, yeah. Yeah. I am. <laughs> so um, actually, because those books were uh, broken up in like 10 books, which I think is the, the right decision at this point, you've got like the game masters who might, you know, get as many as they can to get like, the, you know, the world building and uh, all the NPC cults that they might want. But for players, like if a player is just interested in playing like, you know, Earth, 
cults like Ronaldo and so on. How does the mythology book fit in that? Is it like more of a GM book, a player book? Or book oh, it ties. Yeah, I don't view. I don't view any of these books. I really view all of these books as player facing. Now, okay. a player may say, eh, you know, I'm never going to play a darkness cult. I don't need the darkness, darkness book, which is totally fine. But it's oriented towards, with the exception of the, the Lords of Terror, they're all oriented towards stuff you might play. And what the yeah. mythology book does is it provides a framework for everything. Mm-hmm. So if I was, if, you know, if I was a player, for this, I'd buy. I'd start by buying, you know, the cult book that is my player character cult, and I'd probably grab the other popular one. You know, so if I'm playing an Earth, uh, an Earth cult, I'd buy that book, and I'd probably buy the Lightbringers, and then I'd buy Mythology because that puts a lot of the stories in context, and and it also provides a a big overview. So I tried to do the. Um, probably the most detailed treatment of the the monomyth and took a lot. Greg and I talked a lot about Greg had tried to write a version of the mythology book based entirely on individual stories. So each would be, we would assemble the the monomyth by a whole series of stories that you can then realize they all fit together and they form the monomyth. Yeah. Um, Two huge problems with that. One is that becomes really long. <laughs> and second, um, at a certain point, you're writing stories to fill in gaps. So some of the stories end up just not being as good. Yeah. Uh, and, and Greg always worked better when he had a, this you know, great inspiration and insight and, and came up with this amazing story. And then that story, you would see how that kind of fit in with the overall framework of of the monomyth. But when he had to write in stuff between the lines, yes, generally not as good, and it ends up being a lot of the stuff that we, you know, ultimately should have rejected a long time ago. So what we now have is the monomyth supplemented by individual small stories to give you examples of how that would work. And I think that reads and 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 it reads better and is far more understandable than and and could actually be done in a reasonable deadline rather <laughs> than try to to finish the Bellantar's book project. <laughs> yeah. So because like yeah the, the monomyth is one thing that sort of like emerges very obviously from those cult books as you start reading through one mm-hmm. like through through a couple of cults and all that which which is not something that like you know most glorenta people would know about it but it, it it wasn't as obvious with um the just the rule book and and all that and i was wondering if it's it's more practical for a gaming world or is it more like you know Greg was a big fan of Joseph Campbell or like, or it's just to stay sane to, you know, make a, make a fictional world. It's Greg started writing his, his fictional mythology back in the sixties. Um, and, and there's, there's been a framework to it since 66, 67. And that framework's always been there. So I'd say it predates, it's not that he was a huge fan. It, It got, 
it got the title of the monomyth because of J- Joseph Campbell. But it's it's similar, like um, Tolkien's uh, Legendarium has a structure to it. And, and this is one of the things where Glorantha is a, it's a work of, of fantasy and experimental mythology. And so we can do things in it that make it feel more real, that nonetheless are th- take it a step further than, than, than what we can imagine with real world mythologies. But what would you like, you know, nerds are going to be nerds. And uh, when you take, you know, a bunch of separate stories that look like they fit together, you know, it's a bit like, uh, you know, various Marvel superhero titles sort of like, you know, merging into the cinematic universe. But mythology doesn't have to make as much sense. You know, you can have various versions of myth and, you yeah, know, time doesn't show. various versions of myth and things contradict each other. And so what, what would be your advice for people to stay in the mythology aspect and not veer towards a Glorenthan cinematic universe? I'm not sure that I'm getting your... Uh... Well, basically, the one, the one true monomyth is what Ludo's getting at. Yeah, like often you see fans trying to go like, oh, no, this is not like this happened before that. And it's like, no. It well, there's, there's, there's actually a great essay in the uh, mythology book along that line. Oh, cool. And yeah. basically, Greg, Greg talked about, you know, one of the things that 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 um, were impo- was important to Greg and is important to me is... The very worst way to understand mythology mm-hmm. is to grab a book and argue out the details. You're <laughs> largely missing the point of the story. The yeah. best way to understand the mythology is for it to show up in your game yeah. and for your characters, your 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 character, the GM to participate in this. Mm-hmm. And and to experience it, that's the best way. Yeah, it's Greg's three levels of uh, three or yes. four levels. I mean, the, the very best way is actually to be that person and uh, to directly deal with 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 spirits and gods. But you know, that's that's difficult to arrange, especially in a <laughs> yeah. But yeah. the next best is to play it. After that, the next best is to hear somebody tell you the stories. So, which and the very worst way is to sit there with a book and and treat it like cold facts. And nerds being nerds, as you said, um, that is usually what ends up being discussed by the minority, the small minority of fans. That their way of interacting with the material is to argue about cold hard facts. I think actually most people fall into two and three. Or sorry, into one and two, where they're 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 playing the game. They don't need to deep. They don't need to do the giant deep dive into this. They appreciate that there's a structure to this, and it all all fits together. But that their their primary engagement with it is they got a player character, and they're they're experiencing cool things as that player character, and it gets them thinking about other things. So, you know, one of the ironies is I often find people coming brand new to the setting get it a lot better and a lot deeper than people that have been arguing about it for years.
So uh, myths are also usually about like, you know, grand themes about why people do what they do, why society has to work this way, et cetera, et cetera. And of course it talks about like, you know, death and gender roles and, and things yeah. that are a bit, um, uh, sometimes a bit like maybe um, sensitive topics. And, and uh, I think there is a couple of paragraphs in, in the cult books about like, yes, we deal with some of those topics and, you know, I, Jorg and I are European, so we don't think about this too much, but I know that some people, especially in America, have been a bit like shocked at some of the art, for example, with the nudity or the animal sacrifices and all that. So uh, can Actually, you tell us a bit about that? Let, uh, let me correct yeah. it on this, because somebody who's had um, a foot in both Europe and the United yeah. States for 20 years, we actually never got any complaints in the U.S. about it. Oh, Again, where, did, where do you get complaints then? UK. It's the English. Oh, really? We always say, oh, sorry, no, no, the animal sacrifice was uh, Spanish. Oh, that was oh, from okay. a uh, that was from a Spaniard that was very upset about oh, it. Weird. But anyway, can you tell us a bit more about your like your approach to like actually putting those sensitive topics in in the gaming product? Well, I, I mean, RuneQuest, I view RuneQuest as a product for mature individuals of whatever age that is capable <laughs> of dealing with, um, you know, themes that include life, death, sex, um, so, uh, gender, social organization, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, 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 a lot of the stuff, you know, where does, where, where does the world come from? Why do things function the way they do? Mm-hmm. And, in order for that to be to have to feel real and to be artistically honest, it's gonna hit a lot of things that are stuff that we don't like to talk about, especially especially in this uh social media driven world that we find ourselves in today. Did you um did you find that it was actually difficult to do so, or is it just like you just have to uh, uh, hand wave away a few minority complaints, but it's mostly it's mostly fine. Uh, you know, we came in and and we we would, you know, we we tried to be very careful on how we presented ideas and themes. And you know, there's there's some ground rules. I I you know try to uh, with everything try to be you know, as open to inclusion as possible, uh, you know, it's it's made a lot easier in that there isn't a history of race-based slavery in Glorantha, et cetera, you know, so, so some things you don't need to bring uh, that just aren't appropriate for the setting at all. But we try to write everything with a combination of of care and artistic integrity. And I think when you try to do stuff and and something's showing up, not because you're trying to shock people or you're trying to be, you know, look at me, look at how mischievous I am. Um, I, I I got this in, but I'm I'm addressing this because this is part of the world, and there needs to be um, there there are spirits and gods associated with not just the things that we we like or we aspire to, but also the things we fear and we hate. Mm-hmm. I think people react to, to material like that if it is it's done with artistic integrity quite differently than if it's being smuggled in to try to create shock value. Yeah. 
I don't think there's anything in, in the Colts books where we we're trying to be shocking. Yeah, no, I don't think so. It's uh, I think it comes back to the monomyth where it starts to be a lot more obvious about how each cult and how each deity basically fits in the grand scheme of the cosmos, like which role they um, mm-hmm. they fulfill, which uh, which actually even fixes a couple of the problems I had with the rule book, for example, where in the rule book you have like three seemingly hunting gods, you know, Odaila, Yinkin, and Fanchal. Yeah. And I was at first fairly confused about like, why are there three gods and they seem to be a bit interchangeable. But now with the Lightbringers book, it's a, a lot more clear what role they actually fit uh, and and therefore what players might want to pick based on what character they want to play. So yeah, yeah. and and at the time in the the original rule book, you know, I knew it was going to be a long time before we were able to come out with the detailed cult write-ups. And so what, you know, we had to make a compromise between okay, let's create cults that are there that you know people can get into um that fit the main archetypes that we're going to have in the games mm-hmm. but then let's also throw in a few player character existing fan favorites that okay may not actually be that mythologically important and they may not be as important there but if i don't include them people will whine. So let's, <laughs> you know, let's put that in, uh, you know, let's, I, you know, I could have said the only one we're going to have is Yinkin. Mm-hmm. But then if people want to do a game in Prax, that would be kind of pointless. And the one I, I really thought about dropping was a Dyla because it's just not that important of a cult in any of the, the core home areas. But, mm-hmm. you know, Jason rightfully pointed out to me, you know, this lets you become a bear. How awesome is that? People love being bears, <laughs> uh, and and so it made it in. And and you've got to remember that 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 anytime we do a book, it is one part we are we are establishing the setting and we're we're providing the content on the setting and trying to make sure that as a setting and and as a fantasy fiction, it all works together. But it's also a game. And and making sure that it functions as a game and that there's material there to keep people engaged in it is also incredibly important because that is, at the end of the day, that is what Glorantha or or at least RuneQuest exists for, is for people to to play um, our, uh, role-playing games. So did, did you have any, any trouble making... Uh, some of those cults playable like i'm thinking especially about the water pantheon for example what's going to really it's it's going to be tough some of these cults it's going to be awfully tough if i'm uh if i'm living in dragon pass yeah a lot of these water cults aren't going to have a lot of stuff that is particularly useful in adventuring around in dragon pass i actually in one of the games that i got going on right now we've got one of the characters is a uh initiate of the local river the local river god and oh he's great when they're right near the river which they almost never are uh, <laughs> yes but to me that's important it's important that we don't go down the path where everything every every character decision every play is is equally good in all situations because i think that ends up being 
I I think that that ends up being hard for people to get into. Um, and I think that ultimately that ends up being a dead end for gameplay. Sure. At least for most people. Uh, but even uh, thinking about minor cults like, you know, Yin Kin or things like that, where you, you've got this like big, uh, I don't want to say imbalance because I know your opinions on, on balance in, in, <laughs> in gaming, but basically how, how do you present that to, uh, new players, especially those who come from, you know, D&D or one of those things where classes are tried, like, you know, they try to balance them. So how do you present that in terms of, you know, role-playing opportunity and, and things like that when they pick their cult? Well, I think I think a lot of the minor cults have tremendous role-playing opportunities. I mean, absolutely tremendous. But, you know, it's, it's hey, you know, are you devoted to, you can be devoted to, the 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 great storm king, you know, the the most powerful of the gods who did the Lightbringer's quest, etc. Or you can be devoted to, you know, the cat god. And and you know, you present that to players like that and a lot uh, to new players, they they get the difference. Yeah, you know, okay. it's it's the god of cats. That's not gonna be that's not as cosmologically significant <laughs> as as um the storm king. But it can be just as much fun. You know, this is there is an unfortunate tendency within people that talk about role playing games to conflate paths to to mechanical power with role playing opportunities. And I see them as completely disassociated. You know, there are players that want to achieve within the game. They want to have a path to power, which is great. Yeah. There are other players that just want to have an opportunity to choose scenery and have a great time developing an interesting character that is not necessarily on a path to power. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I've had a couple of players actually who. It wasn't in RuneQuest, but in other games where they would, you know, make their character and they're like, yeah, this is the character I want. And they were actually not really looking to get any XP or anything because like, no, I don't want to make him better. Like, this is the character I want to play. <laughs> exactly. And and we you have to remember that there are many different reasons that people play. And there are many different types of experiences that different players want to pull out of their game. And it is always a mistake, in my opinion, to assume that there is a, you know, what people want is, what people want is X, right? We've got X and by God, this game is going to give us a path to X. And then you're going to find that actually, well, that's just, that's, that's a vocal minority of your potential audience. Um, but more players want to have not X. So you've got to have, you know, many different types of experiences. And it's one of the things I love about the, the, the cults as, uh, splat books or as potential archetypes is there, each cult provides, um, a different mesh or different mix of, of possibilities. You know, if I'm playing Humact, I uh, the one thing I know is I'm going to combat's going to be a really important part of my character. 
combat, you know, that 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 uh, that or or Stormbolt, I know I've got that coming in. But if I'm playing a Dotnandar uh cultist, uh, you know, I'm coming in and and that's not you know, maybe that ends up being an important part of my character, but that's certainly not anything that my cult is going to really help me one way or another with. Yeah. yeah. And and it's one of the things I love about RuneQuest is because it doesn't have to have that computer game-like balance for all things, that you can go in and you can really, you can say, you know, I want to play, um, I want to play Scribe. The scribe's going to follow Lenko or my. Do I have any? Do I have any combat abilities? Not a damn one. <laughs> yes. And and I um, now, if the GM, it, it does put work on the GM because the GMs get you know. Here's the players that have come in. This is what they want to play. Yeah, you got to find something for the character to do. But exactly. But again, it's a it's an open setting in the sense that RuneQuest like. Call of Cthulhu is kind of what you make of it. Yeah, I mean, Call of Cthulhu was my, uh, is probably still my favorite game of all time and my most formative one. And, you know, you can't pick a game further away from a path to power, you know. So giving a scenario uh, where the middle-aged librarian has something to do. Uh, yeah, that's, I, I know that. Hey, we, we all know the middle-aged librarian. That is the power gamer character. In Call of Cthulhu, yes. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. No, 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 the point is, is that, um, I'm sure I've lost the track of the original the 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 original thread there, but that <laughs> the advice to to players are um that I always have if they're new is I give a quick, you know, we pick a location where you know what is this what is this camp campaign kind of be, gonna be about? Where are we gonna set it? Okay, here are the important gods here, and you know, you you pick which kind of speak to you. And and then if somebody says, well, you know, I really do want to play an Ngizi worshiper. We say that, hey, that's awesome. Now just be aware, it's a river god, and we're up in the mountains, and (laughs) if you're away from the the river, that river god might not be very helpful for you. And maybe the player says, okay, okay, I, you know, I want to have something that's got a little bit more heft than that. Uh, Or, what I usually get from players is no, no, no. That's cool with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like you know, if you play a Call of Cthulhu campaign and you play like a a city cop, but you know that the campaign is going to take you to Peru in the mountains. It's like, yeah, I mean, you know, all your contacts in the city are useless there, but you can play a city cop who goes to Peru, and so that's fine. So the main core rulebook and so far, like, you know, up to the cults of RuneQuest, it was like very Dragon Pass centric. And one of the things I noticed with the cults of RuneQuest is it tries to be a lot more global. So it mentions, you know, sacred forest for Odaila up there in whatever I forgot the names and, you know, places in Pamaltella, in Maneria, etc. So it gives you like, it teases those places all across Glorantha. Yes. And I find that interesting because, of course, on the one hand, teases places that people may not know about, so they can either grab the guide and learn about those places, 
but they can also do what people I think did back in the early 80s, which is just like, we just have a name and a sentence. So let's make it up. And I wonder, like, what did you have in mind when you started teasing those places? Well, I, so part of this, uh, a couple of responses, mm-hmm. uh, or a couple of bits in it. One of the things Greg and I talked about with when, you know, back when um, we started the Cults Project, because keep in mind, we've been working on this for quite a few years, is Greg was always dissatisfied with the way that the old RQ3 Gods of Glorantha book had been put away, right? So that was, we're going to do an overview of the whole world, and we're going to have these cults from everywhere in one place, and we're going to assume that you can play anyone in 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 the setting in the core book, mm-hmm. but of course, all of our published material, so all the things that we give the GM for how to interact with this setting are either set in in the River of Cradles or very briefly in Dorastor, <laughs> right? So we kind of flip that. And there's a strong central uh, Genertella, and Genertella is the northern continent, and, and central Genertella is is Dragon Pass, Prax, Holy Country, and the Lunar Empire, which I and and the Elver Wilds, which is where I'd say ninety nine point five percent of all of the games set in Glorantha over um, over history have been set. I mean, let's, let's, you know, you can probably count the number of games that were actually set in Seshnella or Lascom or in Pamotella. You know, they're rounding errors. Now, with all due respect to people, I played in a Pamotella game. Um, and I we'll played probably in- get letters from people like, hey, why I'm sure. We'll get a, get an yeah. But, but the, <laughs> the reality, that is where, you know, if I was going to go down even a step further, I'd say half the games that are ever played were set in, in, in Prax and the River of Cradles, and the other half were set in uh, Dragon Pass. Yeah, yeah. Right. So there's going to be a strong bias towards that because that is where the audience is. On the other hand, I wanted to present this material and show that this is broader than that. And where, so Pamela was included. And I thought about it, Pamela was included because it shows you what. Gennertella could have been that northern continent could have been ha- had there still been a Gennert. Yeah. And also it it gets the mind rolling. Oh, you mean there's different ways we could arrange the relationship between these cults here. Um and we could build if we treat these cults as is kind of building blocks, we can arrange them in different patterns and end up with a very different uh culture. Mm-hmm. But do I expect a lot of people to be playing um, Pamela's initiates um, in, you know, given that all of, you know, pretty much well, all of our material right now is set in yeah. Dragon Pass and Prats? Maybe, maybe a couple, you know, players are <laughs> players. Yeah. But that that is what I expect if, if people go, God, you know, but that sounds so cool. This is what I want to do. Yeah. You now have the key building blocks. Make it yourself. Of course, you uh, sort of laid your uh, little cuckoo's egg with the companions of Agras from the circumnavigation. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, we got that with the Hero Wars. The great thing about the Hero Wars is we got an excuse. 
right? If I want to play a weird, uh, you know, a character that 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 would have been rejected in the Hero Wars era as just not being able to function, ah, we got. And by Hero Wars era, I mean the old Isseries Inks uh, material. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know now, hey, it's it, I'm. I really have my heart set on playing a Pamal initiate. Okay, cool. You, you know, there's boats. Uh, you, you made it across. Maybe you traveled with the wolf pirates, or maybe you, you know, you you you're you came here with merchants or whatever. Yeah, I was actually wondering since a lot of those gods have barely been described before. But I'm sure that there were like you know lots of unpublished material about them. Uh, I wonder how how much some of those gods, even including like Orlanth and whatnot, how much they evolved over the decades until they got published. Now, well, I I mean you could look at this in the in, in the writing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna look at this more from the I'm gonna make a difference between looking at this from a fan side and more looking at it from Greg and my perspective on this. And yeah, which is what I'm more interested in, really. So so Orlanth didn't... Orlanth first showed up in Greg's stories in the 60s and early 70s as as um, Humat or Humacht or, or Humat, uh, the great storm god, uh, and he started writing stories about it. And then the name Orlanth, I don't think even appears until about 77, 78. So you got White Bear, Red Moon comes out. And Greg started test playtesting RuneQuest. And his players, he you know, wanted a god. And he said, okay, well, we got this. I have one of the gods. We've got this, this war god, Kumakt. And they turned him into a god of war and death in the game. And so it was like, okay, I need a new name for this. This is clearly not the storm god anymore. <laughs> I need a new name. And, and um, that became Orlanth. And initially, you know, in the very early bits of RQ2, he had the Lightbringers quest. He had the, the storm story, story pretty quickly. And then Greg wrote a ton of cool material about the the Orlanth cult, it in history, etc. Yeah. Well, the Orlanth write-up is in RQ2, if I remember correctly. Yes. Well, Orlanth Adventures. Um, and and wrote a ton of material. And then given the vicissitudes of Chaosium, he actually lost most of that material in the <laughs> early 1990s. Uh, and we didn't get it back until about 2015. So you had, and, 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 and Greg and I talked an awful lot. You had this period, and again, they, they, Greg had a very different writing. Um, after RuneQuest was sold to or licensed out to Avalon Hill, and basically it became a money loser every time Greg worked, did, worked on a RuneQuest project. Right, because Greg Greg was the was one of the best writers that Chaosium had, but had to be paid. Obviously, has to be paid right out of Chaosium. So, if he wrote something, Avalon Hill took the money and gave a very small fraction back to um, back to Chaosium. 
just in the form of royalties. So really early, it became um, obvious that it just wasn't financially worthwhile for uh, the Chaosium team to do very much with RuneQuest materials during their RQ3 period. And so Greg focused, most of his focus on writing was he started, well, he really wanted to write a, um, initially he wanted to write a story about what his, what he thought was one of the most interesting characters, and I agree with him, in the setting, which is Arcat, and started writing a story about Arcat. And then at a certain point, it, it, it became a story about Harmast. And he started writing these stories about Harmast and his Lightbringer's quest and, and whatnot. And then it became uh, a story about the initiation of Harmast, where he realized what I really want to do, I want to write an initiation story. Now, all of this is set in the, you know, in the first stage of the setting. So Greg's focus was, was before the Gabaji Wars and before Arcat and before Harmas did his big Lightbringers quest, and certainly before the God Learners and before the EWF and before the Lunar Empire and before all of that. But this is the material you know, that Greg was, tr- was was working on. So if you look at the stuff that did get find its way into print at that time, you got um, Glorious Reascent of Yell. Okay, that's basically set in the second century after the dawn. And before. So again, before all of this. You have Fortunate Succession, which kind of brings it up to the Third Age, but most of the focus on it is actually on this early material, because that's where Greg's focus was. Anacosiad, it's all early material. It's all first stage folk. <laughs> and so then you had people that wanted, Greg wasn't really writing anything for um, game product. and But people wanted, you had Hero Wars come out and people wanted to write material. And so Greg gave him what he was working on. And he started having people try to take this deep deep background and we're just going to and and let's take the deep deep background and let's impose it let's let's shoot it forward a thousand years in the setting um but then then you have when i started working on the guide you know greg and i were were talking and it, it i was like no i want the guide to be set in whatever will be the gameable now you can look backwards on it, but let's let's put the setting to where it is now. And Greg it is coincided with with a lot of things clicking for Greg into place. He got a lot of his old notes and materials back because um, they had been lost and they were found. Then when we when when and we were able to put you know Greg uh, got back control of Chaosium and we were able to get everything back in a place for Chaosium, when we started working on RuneQuest, it was, let's let's do this more the way you had been doing it in the 70s and 80s. Let's focus, when we're focusing these stories, let's focus on what it is for the setting as in the time period that we, we, we are, we're establishing for the setting. And there might be past history and 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 old events that peak their head, their way in but that's not the focus of of what we're going to do in putting each of these cults together so the orleans cult got actually a heavy rewrite 
a really, really heavy rewrite in this one. The Arnalda cult got a massive rewrite. Now, that actually was a, a, a lot of input from, from Claudia Loroff and uh, Skylar Manon and um, uh, a bunch of... Uh, we, we actually had Claudia on the show a few episodes back talking about that sort of change yeah. in, in approach for Arnalda. Um, and I'm trying to think which ones of the books that have been published. Um, you know, Marin Gore didn't have anything, but Beaster Gore didn't really have anything. It's mostly, I mean, the spells are the spells for Marin Gore and Beaster Gore are largely what were in uh, the same. It's in RQ3. But if you remember, the RQ3 write up was, was a column. So there wasn't a lot of context to it. Arnalda got a, the spell list got a complete rewrite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Orlanth, the biggest bit, the, 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 one of the toughest bits was to actually work out the, how the Orlanth Rex subcult works within Orlanth. Yeah. Which is super uh, interesting because it gives a fair amount of world building, uh, information too, which. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. And then, you know, I, I, around the same time, I've been, you know, the Sarder book, which will be going into layout very soon. I mean, the art's done and everything. It's now just basically where does it fit within Sims schedule? But the Sarder, the, 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 this all ties into the Sarder book. So the idea is, OK, let's now we can take it. The cults book provides a framework. We can now show specifically how this cult works within an individual uh, homeland through homeland books. But, you know, they required, you know, the Lightbringers and the Earth Goddess, the Earth Goddesses book. I'd say, you know, a lot of the cults required a really heavy re- rewrite. Some didn't require that much. I mean, Humacht, I think the biggest. Like when you say rewrite, did it, did it still, like, for example, Ernalda got a bit of a shift, I think, in how you approach the, like, especially the gender role of, female earth deities in in society but like yeah i don't, right. know, if, I don't know if like many uh cults actually got sort of um not just rewritten in terms of material but actually rewritten in terms of like their their role in the cosmology and the like their their uh look and feel i guess i uh, yes definitely i mean and actually rewrite's not even the right word in a lot of cases they weren't written in the first place yeah okay yeah so they were written in the first time so this i view this one is the first time Ronaldo really got written okay and yeah you can Fair view enough. what i put in the, the old sarder book for hero quest is a rough draft but this is uh the full write-up and then really thinking about well what is what is her role how does she you know what is the role of an, a a the earth mother what is the role of the goddess of women the goddess of fertility etc let's run wild with that mm-hmm. yeah. um one thing that i found interesting also with um some of i guess like the mythologic uh, aspects of of some of the goats is that in some cases it it taps into ancient symbolism like for example um the snakes around uh Arnalda, which have historically been you know associated with healing and rebirth because of like the shedding of the skin and all that uh and which we still see for example the the in doctor's offices the caduceus has the snakes right. but if you would ask anybody on the street you know what do you think about snakes they probably wouldn't say like, oh, this is a symbol of, of uh, rebirth and, and healing. And they would say like, oh, you know, poison and getting bit and whatnot. Yeah. And so the dragon aspect. 
Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wonder actually how how much do you think people might resonate with in terms of those like sort of ancient collective memory symbolisms uh, or whether it's more of an Easter egg that people might catch, for example. I think, you know, I like my bit on, on, on almost everything in it, in these books is, is that it's there. And for some people, they run wild with it. They grab it. They see, you know, I'm in a part of the world, the, the American Southwest, where the snakes are a, uh, an important symbol. They're something I, I was just walking with. Um, actually, I was out a couple of days ago with uh, Suzanne Stafford and my son. We were going on a walk in the, the we actually have a, a, a section of prairie out here. And it's also the uh, we were over at the Lyndon Meyer archaeological site, which is 10 to 12,000 year old uh, archaeological site for the proto-Indians uh of the area and there's a bison herd <laughs> oh awesome <laughs> and a rattlesnake just came out um on the path nice big good sized rattlesnake and the rattlesnake is a is a powerful image in the areas of the world where where it's there i mean it, you look at mesoamerican uh mythology and symbolism and the snake is uh is a powerful figure it's you know, and so for some people, it's going to resonate. For some people, they'll grab it and they'll go, "This is cool. This is great. This is not. This is not Marvel's Thor." <laughs> uh, you know, this is this is something that I can see tied to the world. Other people ignore it, and and both are fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and speaking of like, since we're mentioning like Mesoamerican uh, traditions and all that, uh, one of the cool thing also is, I mean, I'm wildly ignorant about a lot of it but ever since i've gotten into glorenta i've started educating myself a bit more on ancient world mythology and stuff like that and so i'm starting to notice a few things about the influences that are in there you know the uh, mesoamerican imagery the uh, vedic india imagery or themes or like analogies with some of those gods etc etc i mean a lot of it is you know, obvious stuff that you would dig in for inspiration for like a Bronze Age, Iron Age uh, uh, fantasy world. Uh, but I'm wondering, like the, the the most interesting or unusual or unexpected inspiration that you actually used for um, uh, for those cults. There's, let's see. I mean, I'll, almost all of the. Um, with almost all of the Gloranthan deities, it's a combination of drawing on multiple real-world inspirations and then also on just personal inspirations and experiences. One of the ones that I was surprised by is how strong um, the Shiva and Orlanth connections ended up being. You know, Orlanth is a destroyer, but his destruction makes the world possible you know so he's both a destroyer and a preserver which i found you know really it it was very nice to get him away from you know viking god which uh or with um i know we drew on there was some mesoamerican stories we drew on for arnalda one of the things that because greg was really heavily influenced by uh, Mesoamerican 
mythology very very heavily actually when he uh, you know when he died he was working on a book on Oaxacan mythology a nonfiction book uh, based on his experiences out there in in when he was living in Mexico and really studying uh he was teaching in Oaxaca and 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 stu- uh, studying and recording local folklore so these were really big influences uh that I think have done the 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 first two Colts books. You can really see them in a, a number of the books. A lot more of you know there's stronger influences from from uh, Hindu mythology, as you said, the Vedic. But also one of the big keystones for me was, and that really opened my mind, was many many years back in in Berlin. Uh, there was this amazing exhibit at the Ethnographical Museum in in Dalami in in Berlin about the god Heracles mm-hmm. and about how Heracles moved through. Um, so um, Heracles moved. The iconography of Heracles moved around the world and was spread from from Britain. Uh, Roman Britain and and the pillars of Heracles, you know, at the the gates of the Atlantic, all the way to being the guardian of of Japanese Buddhist temples uh, in the name uh, Neo. And one of the one of the places that I thought were was most Glaranthan is Gandhara in about the second century BC to first second century of uh, uh, AD, where you have these this this mythic synthesis of Buddhism, uh, Vedic imagery, and uh, Greek and Persian mythology all coming in with. And it also has the advantage of being one of the periods where you have some magnificent sculpture and surviving artwork. So we have something you can actually look at uh, as opposed to hypothesize around. And for me, that was a, you know, well, of course, that's the way Glorantha ought to work, where you have names and iconography of deities work their way across the setting. And because in in Glorantha, we have to, we we always start with the, the underlying proposition that it, the deity is real, the spirit is real. And, and that's a, Whereas in the real world, we always start whenever, you know, unless you want to be considered um, either a religious nut or a kook, we always start from the position that, you know, the that the, that there are not gods and spirits. These yeah, are their societal constructs. There's societal constructs. And you end up with a very different feel and understanding of how things fit together if you, you come from that. Uh, underlying assumption that that they're real. Yeah, but still, what I I find interesting, especially with the new material, I, I don't really know if it showed up in the old material, but the new material definitely uh, underlines it. And some of your posts on Facebook is that you don't have this picture of a sort of static Glorantha where like the dawn happened and then that's it. Like you you often have material about like different cultures with different understanding of the same archetype, uh, archetype, archetype, yeah, 
I can say it. Uh, but they come together and then they get a better understanding of the deity and they realize, oh, this is oral length. And then, you know, so-and-so sees people on horses. So they start riding horses or they start using chariots. And so there is still this sort of technological and mythological and religious and political development over the ages. And, and the, the, in social, in social as well. Yeah, yeah. And and I love I love that about your approach to Glorenta, really. Well, I think that's important also for a setting to be believable. You know, if it 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 is um so if you go into the Lightbringers quest or the Lightbringers book and you read the history of the Orlanth cult um in time you can see that there's this tension between what is Orlanth is Orlanth this 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 heroic adventurer god that guns around kills dragons fights giants uh does that or is he a atmospheric god and you have a and as a result the the cult has is now has two big assets that are aspects that are that are both acknowledged, but they're slightly in tension with each other. And that to me is more believable than saying, okay, 1600 years before the players do anything, we have the done, it's all set in stone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I find that that creates that that idea that the setting is dynamic and even the understandings of the deities are 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 dynamic makes it easier to believe in the reality of the setting yeah so and again i've given it to you from more from the point of view of a writer yeah uh, which is why we have you here <laughs> um so it's it's great yeah but you know it, you get that, the book that was I'd say the ones that required the most writing and the lunar book, almost everything in there is new material. Uh, and, um, and I think people will have a lot of fun with that. And the solar as well is it was surprising how little, uh, and, and, and one of the things there is, is, and there's been endless debates on Yomalio, Elmal, Karzan. Really? I've, I haven't seen that. Uh, yeah, which I, it, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's funny because I've got the old mar marked up original ma uh, di uh, manuscripts from Greg where it's just all Yomalio. And then they call, it, call him Elmal here or or. You know, you know, Yamalio was is the chief god of the 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 nomad tribes. Hey, let's give him a nomadic name, Karzant. So, <laughs> you know, when I'm looking at this material, it's I, I, it's from a different perspective. There's a uh, you know, yeah. Greg. We were talking about this a bunch of years back, and you know, the 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 Mesopotamians scribes would identify hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gods. But in reality, they really had about 40 that had mm -hmm. cult. And they would give different names. They, they would, you know, if you wanted to build up a big list, you would give a god, you know, 20 different names and say, look, look, we've got here. I've come up with 500. But we actually have it down. You know, there's actually about 40 identities. Um, and the same thing you could say in Glorantha, there's about, I don't know, 100, 120 deities of more than local wide um relevance mm -hmm. and you know all sorts of little minor uh tiny ones and greg 
would write lists and lists and lists and lists and lists. And, lists and, have it, it, and so, you know, when it got to the, the solar gods, you know, it was really clear from Greg that, you know, we you cut through the name and you'd have to say this sometimes with when, when I was writing with Greg, okay, let's cut through all the names. <laughs> yeah. Cause it needs to be playable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, that's, that's, that's awesome. And yes, that's how, how people are in this. But on the other hand, we all know that in the, the actual real world, you know, they did the Romans think the Zeus was a completely different deity from Jupiter. Well, we know they, they didn't, they, they viewed these as, you know, that, that this is what, this is what the Greeks called Jupiter. Um, and you read your, you, you read your Herodotus and he talks about, you know, the Egyptian gods or, or their gods. And he gives them the Greek names, but points out that they, they view them differently and they, they, they depict them differently, but it, it's the same God. So if we go in with the solar, uh, the solar gods, there's a sun God, right? Cause there's a sun. Um, and so we have Yom and most people can't, can't even reach Yom in most cultures. And so that's why you have the, the sun disc. Most cultures say that some other will, will, will worship another God. And that's the God that pulls the sun disc through the sky. And that kind of comes back to an old, if, if you will remember Christina Reich, who is in our gaming group, yes. <laughs> talking about the, the solar cults in Northern and Central Europe in the Bronze and Iron Age. And so we're not going to, we're, we're going to say the sun doesn't, the sun doesn't, you know, the sun is one of the few things in the, the, the world that always follows a set pattern, right? It's a, it's a regular thing. It, it, it doesn't have a whole lot of stuff it gets to do on its own. So most people don't even view it as, uh, or most cultures don't even, uh, didn't even initially view it as something that had a lot of um, agency. Agency, right? There's the sun. Hey, it's it's in the sky. It's a great thing. It brings life. But if I, it's not going to do anything for me beyond what it's already doing. I'm going to, but it's got a horse or a, a, a someone that also is following that path. And that's a lot easier to approach in contact. And that's the little son. So, you know, you just go to Greg's names, Yelm, little Yelm, right? Yelm and Yamalio. Uh, so in the solar book had a lot of fun. I've had a lot of fun with, with that there in, but of course I'm sure it's going to, there'll be vigorous small arguments about it on you know yeah. oh this is awful i i i feel it's ruined that the the, yeah. the maybe you should put out should put out some facsimiles of those old notes of greg uh changing the names <laughs> <laughs> oh i love the first edition of the uh, the very first notes on the anacosiad where it's where it's before Greg came up with the naming system they wanted to have for Palanda. So there's stories about Lodrol, Yamalio, Yelm, <laughs> uh, uh, et cetera. And, you know, the, I think it's wonderful that people are get so engrossed in these stories and that the, the, the lore, you know, you get these arguments, passionate debates about it. I think that's great. It's, it's cool. 
And it's wonderful. And it shows how how much people love this setting and, and love this game. But also there's a certain bit where sometimes, you know, I'll see stuff on it going, I... <laughs> guys no it's gonna be nerds but yeah well people love it's, it's it's passionate fandom yeah. it's yeah. passionate fandom and it's, it's the internet so it comes with a whole bunch of you know downsides well people do uh, people do it face to face as well oh my i God. mean once where i find interesting is where you know you build up well where people with a very straight face will tell me, um, well, I clearly have it wrong because, <laughs> you know, God, fill in the blank name. It's usually Elmo. That's usually, <laughs> uh, ha, uh, is, has fire powers and fire spells and the cult write up clearly. I think to my knowledge, there was never a published RuneQuest write up for this. <laughs> yeah. Well, you wrote, well, you know, I wrote something in a book and I'm saying I got it wrong. And it's an interesting, it's just an interesting thing on the the passion of some of the discussions about it. Yeah. I'm sorry, I've lost the thread again. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, I've I've got no horse or chariot in this whole thing because I came way later. So yeah. I'm, I, it, well, it just and the, the funny me. thing is, is the whole bit there on Elma. Right. Greg was trying to figure out what was the what would the Orlanthi of the first age thought the sun was right before they have the interaction with the Darahap. Yeah, because they, they didn't know the happens back then. Right. So what would that have been and what would the stories have been on this? And he's like, OK, it's Elma. You know, that's like we're going to build up a little bit. And then, well, how is it that it became Yamalia? And we've got all these stories about the Yamalio cult in the Second Age and so forth and so on uh, being there. And I assume this will be in the history of the Yamalio cult in the Solar. Yeah, but uh, also also the thing is, if you had read everything up through King of Sartar, it all was easy to put together. The problem happened when uh, David came out with the King of Dragon Pass computer game and Elmal was a popular cult in this. And, and and you know you had your Elmal myths, et cetera, which David wrote, and they're great, and they're great fun, but you know that became people's experience was with with Elmal, and then of course people forgot that the whole thing in the King of King of Sartar computer game is it's a alternative history, right? Because Sartar never comes into the King of the, yeah, it, it happens like two or three centuries before the RuneQuest setting, and it's a and no story from there. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. no Sartor, none of that stuff happens in the in the, the computer game. And untangling that was you know, when we started putting things together for um uh RuneQuest Glorantha, and I was like, oh well, you know, should we have Elmal temples and whatnot in Dragon Pass? And Greg said, no, they're all Yamalio. That's what I said in King of Sartar. The Yamalio <laughs> ended. <laughs> Where is this coming from? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, this is one of the things I love about the Glorantha community is you have everybody has their own Glorantha. It's a great thing. At times, it makes my job a headache because <laughs> you know there has to be something that that is, hey, this is this is what we're publishing. This is how we keep the storylines 
um, in the publications. We got to keep them straight. This is straight. This is what the cult description is going to be. But on the other hand, you know, your Glorantha will vary. So. Okay, I got one last bit. This is since I got York here and I got you here. Here's your chance. We'll do the old Glorantha lore auction. <laughs> okay, oh I figured this would be a good chance. So you get your each. We get the three questions. Three questions that you want to have a canonical answer, and I'm perfectly happy saying there is no answer to that at this point. But here you are. Oh my! So okay. So, if Tolat and Anila, the Blue Moon, are twins, who are their parents? When are they born? Well, so if they are twins, and not all myth, not all mythology holds them to be twins, but it is it is one of the most common uh, accepted genealogies. They were both born in the underworld after Yelm died, so their parents are Yelm and uh, the River Styx, if I recall correctly. So they, uh, you know, young, young being so awesome that even dead, he was able to bring off offspring um, on underworld deities. And which, you know, if you think about it, we have the blue moon goddess, the goddess of tides, of course, is going to be tied to the underworld, but also to the sky because the yeah. she goes up and down from the underworld to the sky and... When she moves up, the waters rise somewhat with her. And when she moves down, so she's got to have them. She's got to have some deep water connection, but she's also got to have a sky connection. And Tolot also spends half his time in the underworld, right? That the planet does. And he is, although a, 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 a celestial entity, he always has this kind of screwed up underworld connection with that. So the connections, I don't know, you know, you may have to dig really far to find um, the underworld connection for him may just simply be he was born in the underworld uh, and appeared. Now, Shargash, um, all good there happens, I'll tell you, Shargash is the son of Yom and Dandara, who's also a planet uh, or a planetary entity. But, you know, the... There, there often is a feeling, at least with the early, you know, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna be in Glorantin here rather than talk about this as a write, a writer. But at, at, in Glorantin, I, I'd say Platonius, Platonius did such a good job explaining things in the first or second century after the dawn that even where he was wrong, people find reasons to to make him right. You know, he, he basically hammered things down. And even, you know, it's it's like the uh, identification of of Antirius in on the God's Wall. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of identifications Pontonius did. You can poke holes at them. Uh, but by God, he was such a great writer and he wrote it down. And a lot of scri scribes continue to to. Um, in order to learn fire speech, a written fire speech or old dare happen, you copy those old those old scrolls over and over and over again. And so, even where he's wrong, those dare happen scribes are 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 dedicated to preserving the Plantonius version of it. 
How's that for an answer? Yeah, that's a bit like uh, Caesar reporting that you uh, capture a moose by felling the trees they sleep on. Oh, or like Herodotus's great stories about um, giant ant lions being the source of India's gold, <laughs> which I thought yeah. was pretty cool. <laughs> so, Pluto? Um, it might have been answered somewhere, but I'm not aware of it. Uh, what was, um, uh, what's this guy, the guy who basically caused the syndic's ban, uh, Prince Nodal or yeah. whatever? Uh, what, what what was he trying to accomplish when he killed the local communication god? Well, if he, he destroyed the god, they, they had to destroy the god of the silver feet because if if all of Fresnella, if they couldn't find a way for Fresnella to, to disassociate, right, to, to then uh, Lascom was, he, he had seen the writing in, I can't remember if it was Zaber's book or it was some Altine, so some, some semi-divine people's uh book of what's going to happen in the in the third age and Lascom was going to be destroyed so the whole thing with the, the the killing of the god of the silver feet was a way to bypass a prophecy so kind of think you know you know your 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 classic bit we have a horrible prophecy here yeah. There's a horrible prediction that this is going to be going to happen. And Prince Snodel and his buddies, they figured out a way to bypass it. Of course, now the Syndic's Pound is ending and now you've got the Kingdom of War appearing. And mm -hmm. it, 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 it does kind of look like, well, maybe it only temporarily bypassed the prophecy because it just delayed it. Yeah, it, it just delayed it. Is that is that an acceptable answer? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. The idea, if I remember the idea that the and again, I I, I looked at Greg Snowdle stories not too long ago, but it was it was um, he had seen the doom of Lascom when he was in Altenay. Yeah. And this was their way of trying to prevent it. Cool. Do you have a last one, Eric? Yeah. Last one, Eric. Yeah, well, uh, it's one I've saw, seen recently discussed is the matter of theist worship among the uh, Marchioni, which you uh, just commented today. Yeah. Okay, what's the question? Yeah, well, the question really is to what extent is the use uh, of uh, gods by the Marchioni uh, a conversion with their monotheist philosophy? Well, see, you've just used a bunch of words and labels that yeah. I think send you down wrong paths. I don't uh, even know what he's talking about. So <laughs> Okay, so so the Malchioni, right, that's a big cluster word. They the so we use the term Malchioni more broadly than almost any other religious group in Garanta, which is probably a mistake. But so the, the key things that we have together with all the Malchioni groups is an idea that the humans are at the center of the universe and that the world can be understood materially. Right. So we can we can we can we can look at the world and we can have a materialist understanding of the world that is superior to sitting around and offering plates of food and dead dead pigs to gods and spirits so that so you have 
through that way, there are ways to be able to um, influence and impose our will on the world, if we, which we call sorcery. But the problem with sorcery is most people are never going to possess the resources or the time or the, the dedication to make much out of it. But in an ideal world, as a, a sorcerer, ideally, we would just set up a system where everybody, um, all the rest of society, the non-specialists, would provide us with massive pools of mana for us to be able to weave that into spells where we're able to to do the things necessary for us to have a good harvest, uh, for us to be defended, protected from our enemies, for, you know, for hostile and malevolent things to be banished and whatnot. But human society is um, the Malky, uh, the, the pores of wizards have never been able or almost never been able to create a society that works purely upon that philosophical grounding. Am I, are you, am I, are you following me so far, Ludovic? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, because unfortunately there's history and there's other people and there are gods and there are spirits. So there's always been as a background, there have always been the gods and the spirits there. And it's often been easier and more cost-efficient for us to set up a little cult to that deity rather than to to spend a huge amount of resources and focus to give the wizards the power to be able to deal with that um, in the way that they find philosophically appropriate. So you have in every Malkioni society, you have this, this tension between the kind of logical rationalism that the that you have amongst the wizards and all the rest of society <laughs> yeah the, the farmers are like but we can just offer a pig and we get rain and like we don't have to do all this stuff so that you can make a two-month ritual to make the same rain that we could have otherwise in in like, exactly yeah so you're going to have, and 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 of course, many of the people, many of the the the, the people that are within that Malkioni world, had been followers of you know they they they'd worship the spirits and they worship the earth goddess. I mean, the most important Malkioni history of time was Hrestal, and his big myth, his big his story was he went and he killed the daughter of the local earth goddess. And he got sent to the underworld. And his father, the tailor of uh, uh, good old uh, Frolar, who is the the tailor of, of Sashnella, ended up having to marry the earth goddess. And, and you know, his, his son, who got to inherit the kingdom, had, uh, you know, was half serpent. It was kind of obvious that he was he was he was touched by the by the earth goddess. And so that's all that's there from the beginning. So of course there's gonna be a in in many Malkioni areas, you're gonna normal people rather than rely a hundred percent on the wizards, they're gonna hedge their bets. They're gonna set up shrines to spirits um and to acceptable uh deities. They're, they they might call that acceptable deity something else, uh, and the where the two places that are really exceptional 
uh, um, are both movements in the third age. One is Rokar, Rokarism. And Rokarism is, you know, uh, it's a reaction against the destruction of Sashnella and all of the, the horrible calamities that the god learners had. And it is a, no, 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 this, 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 you know, we should follow the law. You know, we, 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 we really should uh, not make compromises that are philosophically and intellectually un, uh, unjustified. By you know, let's 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 get rid of these um, people. Should not be enslaving themselves to deities and spirits. It only bad stuff happens from this. And of course, you have the problem that once again, the vast majority of the common people didn't, you know, weren't part of this philosophical movement. But you have an alliance between the wizards and the rulers to try to to try to create a society that is more rational in basis. And so the Rokerism is, they're the realists. They're the, the we've got a way to go through. This is, this is unfortunately how the world is, but on the long run, we'll be able to create something that really follows Malkion's uh, precepts or laws or whatever you want to call it. So eventually we'll basically have what was promised to humanity. And then you got the new Hrastole, who are also, I mean, I actually think they're much wackier than the Rokari. And they got to take advantage of during the ban, there was no outside people. You know, you had Lascom, and it was basically Lascom was was like Gormengast, removed from the rest of the world, surrounded by um mist and and in no contact with anyone else. And it could it could be a true, you know, we could try to really top through bottom impose a philosophically ideal society. And they managed to pull that off. And one of the things that that a philosophically pure society for humans have is humans don't subjugate themselves to gods and and deities. We rely on wizards to manipulate them through will and logic. I think that they went further and and probably were more successful in Lascom than the the Rokari were in Sushnella. But in everywhere else, yet people had to make compromises with with the real world. And and there are gods and there are spirits. And little as you said, the local farmer is gonna offer a sacrifice to the green goddess even whether it is philosophically correct or not and and you can kind of use this as an analogy i lived in berlin for many years you could kind of make it an analogy to the you had um in eastern europe and in the soviet union you had the philosophical if you imagine marxist leninism as a philosophical system where we're going to get rid of capitalism, we're going to get rid of all of these pre-existing traditions and whatnot. But if you you cut deep into any area in there, the, the pre-existing traditions in society continue to exist at some level or another. Does that does that I I, I know that that meandered a bit. <laughs> I forgot what your I forgot what your question was actually. So yeah, uh, b- uh, basically to boil it down, we have uh, this. Uh, Cultic worship now in the Rokari lands. 
Yeah, and of course you've got uh, the the tailors, the nobles um, have to. You know, I'm sure they have an ever shorter list of what's acceptable. <laughs> but you go off, you, you know, yeah. this is acceptable. This is acceptable. I'm fine with the peasants doing this. And that the, the wizards are always saying there shouldn't be anything. This is a list of exceptions. <laughs> we should be rid of it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think this is the kind of stuff that emerges when you think when when you do your world building from the bottom up, when you think about actually like the people that are actually <laughs> living in that setting, what what's their experience and what might they react to as opposed to a top down when you say like, yeah, of course, the wizards are at the top they're going to say do it that way and everybody's doing it that way but no like when you think about yeah the uh, person on the exactly. ground like, oh, so, yeah. uh, so the nobles in the end want to make ends meet financially or uh, economically too and that's why they want this these fertility rights on their fields but at the same time they need the wizards for legitimacy and support so you you, you know another a model for that is uh the compromises between the house of sod and um, the Salafi uh, movement in in Saudi Arabia, right? You have a that that part of the reason of the rise of the House of Saud was its alliance with a uh, a very strict. strict and stripped down view of Islam, right? This is in the seventeenth or eighteenth century, I think, right? So you need to do that. But on the other hand, scholars and and preachers don't have to pay the bills. <laughs> they don't have to raise the armies. So, but on the other hand, I need those scholars and preachers because they provide the ideological support for me being the top dog. So I need to keep them happy while still making enough money off my peasants and still being able to hire an army. And it, I always fi I figured that's kind of where the 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 rulers of Seshnella are is, you know, they've got this this very organized and cohesive um, group of wizards who are very numerous and really really useful, and they also say I'm the top dog, as long as you know I get to be I get to make I get to make all the big decisions about uh about stuff and they'll support me as long as i try to support what it is that they're doing but on the other hand between us nobles and them wizards there's the other 98 percent of society <laughs> who aren't necessarily on board with any of this yeah. and and i need to hire i need to be able to have full-time people to fight for me right because if i you know if it's wizards i don't know give them six months to cast that spell. You know, I, it's, it's not very useful here. Yeah. Um, it's, it's great when we have the time to do it, but I, I need something that can act faster. That's my, my soldiers or warriors or yeah. whatever you call them. And half of them, they worship war gods and war, uh, martial spirits and whatnot. And I'm going to turn a blind eye to that because they're damn useful. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got the farmers and crafters who, you know, if if they don't have a good harvest, I'm screwed. Mm -hmm. You know, so so my um one of my models for Sashnella in the third age is the the Mughal Empire in in India. So you have the 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 top tier of society are it's it are devout Sunnis, 
They need to be. All the power, key power brokers in, in the empire, you know, they all are Muslim at the very top here. And, and you got to keep them happy. But I'm, you know, you're the ruler of a population that is mainly not Muslim. So how do you make all of that um, that work there? You know, you can you can have plenty of other examples. I just try to avoid always with the Malchioni falling into the trap of thinking uh, medieval Christendom because it, I, you know, I don't think it maps very well. You know, it's a, it's it's largely an unfortunate. Uh, it's an unfortunate use of titles that Greg used in the 1980s <laughs> yeah. and and the coolness that was the credo uh, board game. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I think I think when you started pointing at, you know, viewing Malkionis are as maybe uh what is it like Arab scholars from the 13th century or whatnot. And I'm like, that's actually super cool. So but anyway, we are way out of time way uh, off topic um but uh, we could obviously talk about those kind of things for hours <laughs> but well, i hope uh, this was i hope you guys had fun i i i managed to to stay yeah. on a lot longer than i expected to. <laughs> uh yeah well i i hope you had fun because we will definitely bring you back when a couple more of the cults book are out especially like you know solar lunar and even like the, the there's an invisible god uh Book. That'll be at the very end of it. Yeah. yeah no, but... I figure it'll be. I actually expect they're going to blow your mind. Cool. Yeah. Uh, but in the meantime, yeah, we should uh, take this to a close. So thanks again for uh, your time today. Thank you guys much. <laughs> and uh, hopefully, uh, see you again and uh, looking forward to all those new books. Yeah. Great. Thank you for listening to this episode of The God Learners. Our website is godlearners.com where you can find episodes, newsletters, and articles about Glorantha. Reach us via email at collective at godlearners.com or via Twitter or Facebook at The God Learners for any questions or feedback. We are The God Learners. Question everything to the void and beyond. <laughs>